now there are lags there are disruption risks and there are risks that you get too far gone or the labor force simply doesn't exist then you start putting a zimbabwe of imar and a venezuela on the table Thanks for joining us for part two of our interview with macro research analyst Luke Groman. If you haven't yet watched part one of our discussion with Luke, in which he explains why the U.S. and other nations are now trapped by their massive debts within an inflate or default no-win situation, head over to our channel at youtube.com Wealthion and watch it there first. It sets the context for the investment perspective that Luke and our partners at New Harbor Financial share in this video. And don't forget to support this channel by first liking this video and then clicking the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. If everyone watching right now takes these two simple steps, it really does help this channel reach a lot more people. All right, let's get started watching part two of our interview with Luke Groman. Are there certain asset classes that are even better positioned for the type of future that you see coming? Yeah, I think if you look at some of these um, these situations, right? So there was a great study uh, by uh, it was originally done by uh, the data was by uh, Reinhardt and Rogoff um, ten years ago, uh, but Hirschman Capital last summer used some of that data and looked at it and noted that. Going back to 1800, there were, I think, 52 instances where nations got to 130% debt to GDP. And of those 52 instances, 51 of them defaulted. Uh, I typically, via high inflation or hyperinflation, there were a few actual default restructurings, but they were generally inflated their way out of it. And so, you know, the one, the one case that didn't was Japan. And, and so it's interesting is, Consensus is still, and I think still this, hey, well, the U.S. is Japan. The U.S. is Japan. The U.S. is Japan. Um, even though that's the 2% case going back 220 years. Um, the 98% case is we're in a secularly inflationary environment where a government's not going to let themselves go bankrupt or miss a debt payment or an, an obligation for lack of printed money. And so I think what we're... In, in, in the worst of these environments, to your question, there's sort of a hierarchy, right? So everything falls in gold prices. And I would make the case that maybe Bitcoin's up there too now. Um, you know, everything falls against gold and Bitcoin. Uh, commodities, uh, and in particular oil and gas, tend to then be sort of very next down on that hierarchy of, of, of inflation. Other, and I would probably put uh, electric, electric vehicle metals, copper and stuff right along there. Food commodities come probably right in line with that too, sort of your energy and energy proxy commodities, other commodities from there, stocks, real estate, bonds, right? So you sort of take the whole um, extras pyramid and, and turn it upside down. And that's sort of your, your ranking of, of where you want to be in these situations when you have a what's effectively a balance of payments problem that the central bank, uh, I won't say solves for you. I mean, ultimately it's a solution, uh, but, but tries to mitigate for you. Um, and so it really comes down to this, um, you know, cause again, if extremes inform the means, 
people are looking at the U.S. situation saying, well, debt's always deflationary and, and, and you know, unemployment's always deflationary. And, you know, if extremes inform the means, as I think they do in, in Zimbabwe, unemployment was 95 percent. You know, stock market was the best performing stock market in percentage terms for a number of years. And so uh, I don't think the U.S. is Zimbabwe. I think the U.S. it's going to be the U.S. with sort of Argentinian characteristics, um, uh, where there's a, the, the biggest thing that we have relative to some of the more extreme cases like a Zimbabwe or like a Venezuela or like a, um, a Weimar Germany, it really is about um, at the right price of everything, we can produce pretty much everything we need. Uh, so when oil prices went up 10x uh, from 2000, 2001 to 2008, Five years later, we've got 12 million extra barrels of oil that we're producing. And I, at, at every, pretty much most everything we need, we can do that. Now, there are lags, there are disruption risks, and there are risks that you get too far gone or the labor force simply doesn't exist. Then you start putting a Zimbabwe, a Weimar, and a Venezuela on the table um, as, as a possible risk. Yeah, when you hit those real world constraints, like right, just and they become and when they become un un like no matter what you the thing about a Venezuela or a Weimar, it, it was no matter what the price is, you can't get it, and that's ultimately where you get these true currency destroying hyperinflations. And so, you know, it's interesting. I think there is some some I think consternation around the supply chain shortages, etc. And it's sort of right now a, a, it's a curiosity, right? So, wow, this is America. I've never seen a supply shortage before in America, in my life. Uh, it's the land of, you know, milk and honey. There's always too much. And so we're seeing these, and, and it's, it's transitory, it's temporary, it's a mismatch between supply and demand, it's, it's COVID, it's all these. And I think that's the case. I think that's right. But there's the underlying there, there, there's an underlying change in psychology that happens at some point along this process, right? So if this goes away in six months, 12 months, I don't think it's a big problem. It starts stretching on 12, 18, 24 months where you consistently go to the store and you don't know what's going to be there. You're fu- you fundamentally start to change. I've already seen it in my wife. For, so for example, we, we, we needed some new furniture. Uh, we've been in the same house for 15 years and we've got three boys. So they just beat the shit out of all of our furniture, right? So at some point you, you, you don't want to look like you're like, you know, you're living in a couch like you used to have in college, right? Because <laughs> like I'm, actual, I'm, I'm an actual adult now, or at least I try to play one on TV. And so you go to the, you go to the furniture store and you say, okay, what do you got? And they go, well, if you want to order something, it's six months from now. I'm like, okay, well, we need washer and dryer. And they're like, well, we can get that for you in March. And so what my wife said was, tell me what you have on the floor now. Because I don't trust the supply chains. I don't trust that you're telling me the truth that it's going to get here in March because we still had someone tell us back in March that we were going to have something. And it didn't show up till July. So it's like, it's already- She's lost her consciousness. She's already shifted. She's usually very forward thinking. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Mrs. FFTT is usually very forward thinking with this stuff. So it- her decision set is no longer, I want this color couch in this style, and I want that washer and dryer with these features. It's, what do you have on the floor? What do you have in the warehouse? I'll take that now because I know I can get it. And so when, you know, if things don't change with supply chains over the next, 
my guess is it's probably a six to 12 month process. I don't know that if, if we continue having these kind of problems 12 months out, I think there's gonna be a lot more Americans saying, screw it, give me that what's on the floor and I'll pay up for it. Right. We've seen this right. with used car prices. I was going to say, we're already store. seeing that with used cars. Yeah. And, and what's interesting is that it creates a vicious cycle in many ways. It's almost like the bank run. And we're seeing this in the UK play out right now with, with gas stations, right? That basically yeah. consumer sentiment has, has caused a run on gas or petrol uh, in the US. So yeah. it is interesting that, yeah, we, we, we may actually make prolong the problem even further once we right. really fully start acting this way. No, that's exactly right. So that's the wild card in all this that really then creates this sort of hard stop of, of the, the psychology getting away from them. And then when you overlay this with, you know, historically, when Mrs. FFTT is like, screw it, I got to get rid of these dollars and get what I can, whatever's on the floor, the Fed comes in and goes, okay, this is insane. The economy's too hot, raise rates, put in a recession, drop prices, and away we go. But the Fed can't do that. They can't time. do that now. Yeah, because this is Argentina. they will bankrupt the government. The government will not be able to cover true interest expense without the Fed's help. They already can. So what? Like, I know this. I know it's not well understood at this point. I think it will be well understood in the next six months. And then if the supply chains have been fixed by then, then I don't think it's a big problem on the inflationary, really getting an inflation. If the supply chains are still problematic by then, then things could get really interesting on the inflationary side where it's, it's, it's no longer about um, what's employment doing or how much debt do we have. Then it becomes, oh my God, monetary velocity went from here to here. And there's not a damn thing they can do about it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, God, I wish we had another hour here, Luke. <laughs> um, so thank you for everything, but, but thank you for going through that pyramid, uh, because that was exactly where I like to get to in these discussions is, you know, some sort of potential direction for, you know, the viewers to consider, and you just gave them sure. a nicely prioritized list. Um, so one, one asset that I think a number of people are sitting on right now uh, is at least a healthy percentage of the viewers is cash, because they have been skeptical of today's market valuations. They've heard guys like Jeremy Grantham say, hey, every time we've had a similar situation like this in the past, we've had a 50 plus percent market correction, whatever. They're holding on for dry powder. You yourself mentioned that there are going to be some deflationary you know, periods in here punctuating stuff. Uh, so they are basically keeping dry powder to deploy during those, those times. Uh, in the situation that you just described, you don't want to be holding on to cash, you know, once uh, money velocity really kicks off like that. And, and, and it becomes like an Argentina where people are just trying to exchange their, their currency as quickly as possible for real things. What are your thoughts right now on just having a cash position in the current environment? I think, I think it's wise. I, I think it's wise as long as it's properly sized. I wouldn't want to be sitting on 50% cash or probably not even... 30% cash, but, but I think 15 to 20% cash, particularly if you are, you know, 50, 55 plus where you're close enough to a retirement age where, uh, you know, look, if I'm wrong and we get a massive deflationary collapse, which uh, it could happen, uh, you're, you're still going to be able to buy some assets at a discount. I think ultimately that for the reasons we talked about before, that becomes self fixing or, or no, not self-fixing, but it becomes government fixing. They have to, they have to do something to avoid defunding themselves. Maybe the cure for a market crash is a market crash. They'll step in and just <laughs> yeah. inject as much as possible. Yeah. Right. So, 
because we are in such unprecedented times in terms of both the debt, the derivatives, the geopolitical, um, the, the, the uh, a pandemic, the demographics, uh, the entitlements, all of this stuff, there's, there's, there's no playbook that exists um, for it. I think you sort of have to piece together things that look alike, and then it's about risk management. And so for me, uh, and I might have even mentioned the last, this, the last time I was on, on, uh, on your show talking with you, was uh, the richest man in history was Jacob Fugger, uh, F-U-G-G-E-R, where, and he was just 25% in cash, 25% in gold, 25% in stocks, 25% in real estate. And then just move stuff around as, as, as you need to, as just to one rebalance. rises, just to rebalance. And it was really about, you know, this is, you know, in Europe in the I don't know, 1400s, 1500s, right? You get the vagaries of this king's overtaking that king and the Holy Roman Empire is rising and falling. And it's about transporting wealth from here to there. So for me, having that cash, I think, you know, to me, 25% cash is too high in this environment. But like I said, I... I you know, 15, 20%, particularly if you are within, you know, 50 plus, 55 plus, close enough to be age 50, 55 plus, uh, to be close enough to retirement where, look, if we do get some sort of spiral where it's catastrophic and asset prices falls, there's nothing they can do about it. You've, you've got that protection. Um, to go buy up other assets on the cheap that you can then, you know, make a, you know, you, you can, you can then fund your retirement with But I think in terms of the inflationary risk to that 15, 20% cash, you know, the gold. And when I say gold, I would, I would, you know, split gold and Bitcoin um, depending on your preference. Some people want to hold a lot of Bitcoin and a, and a little bit of gold and vice versa. Um, I think that's personal preference, but ultimately I think those two assets will do quite well and more than offset the real purchasing power losses. Again, with that reverse extras pyramid, the gold, Bitcoin go up versus everything, I think in sort of a really bad, uh, you know, Argent US with Argentine characteristics kind of inflation scenario uh, and increase your standard of living, right? Because it's all about increasing your standard of living, your purchasing power of your retirement assets. So that's how I thought about in terms of cash. All right, great, thank you. Um, look, we're gonna, you're from a, a, a baseball family. Um, we're going to go into extra innings here, but um, we're going to have to be playing fast pitch, fast pitch ball here because uh, okay. I, I want to be respectful of your time. Um, okay, so uh, gold. Um, I just want to read a tweet that you put out the other day um, and just ask you to explain it because um, it was a really interesting tweet. Baked into the price and valuation of every single asset but one is an assumption of ever-rising supplies of cheap and readily available energy. It's very germane to what we're just talking about. The only exception to this rule is physical gold held in your hand. Is this timeless investing lesson about to be retaught? <laughs> so just very quickly, why did you put that out there and what did you mean? I'm just watching what's happening in China, right? Where your power supply cuts, uh, petrol lines in, in the UK, uh, et cetera. It, it, the punchline is, is every asset you hold implies energy, right? You have a vacation home. If there's not enough gasoline for people to drive to your vacation home, the valuation of that vacation home falls. Uh, if there is no services because they don't have the gasoline uh, for the municipality to plow the roads for you to get there, you do not have an asset. The value of that asset falls. If there is not enough energy for a company to run its production lines, to make widgets, to generate cash, to pay the bonds back, the value of the bonds falls. 
this goes on and on and on. And the only, even Bitcoin, which I love, and I own, I own uh, Bitcoin, I'm a big proponent of it. There is an implied energy IOU there. You have to have electricity. Now, for us to assume no electricity to run the network uh, there is a very extreme scenario, one I prefer not to think about. And I will totally grant that to, to uh, Bit, Bitcoin purists who have, who have commented on that tweet, uh, rightfully so. But there's only one asset where it's nobody else's obligation and it requires no energy to hold, and it's gold. It's not gold miners. Gold miners have to generate electricity, uh, energy, expend energy to get more gold. Gold represents energy already expended in my hand. Nobody else has to perform. There it is. And so that's really what that tweet's all about. All right. Uh, I, I, I don't want to sound like I'm overselling it, but it's sort of like timeless value, right? That gold never needs to be converted into anything else to be valuable. It's just valuable intrinsically in and of itself sitting there in your hand. Um, I'm going to get a ton of uh, pushback already by not leaving enough time to really dig into cryptocurrencies with you. But you mentioned Bitcoin a couple of times. Can you just tell us very briefly your current outlook um, or attitude towards the cryptocurrency complex? And uh, I can't remember if you're one of those guys that uh, makes a real difference between Bitcoin and all the other tokens out there. I prefer, and I'm, I'm very simplistic about it. So I'm, I'm, I, I, I stand on the shoulders of a number of giants as it relates to the, we'll call it the science and all of the technology associated with it. I really come at it from a macro perspective. And so for me, I focus really on Bitcoin. I, I, I want to own the finite um, network, decentralized. Uh, I, I just look at it as sort of, you can look at it however you want, the digital digital vacate, right? They only make so many, you know, lakefront house properties, right? There's only so many lakes, only so many lots. There's, what do the value of those do? They go up over time because of that uh, finiteness. I look at Bitcoin as, uh, you know, lakefront real estate in the digital space. It's a finite reserve asset. It's neutral. It's nobody's obligation. It does have an energy IOU, but the flip side of that energy IOU, right? In terms of the energy it requires to keep the network up and going, the flip side of that, it is, it is an energy tied asset, right? And so to the extent it's an energy tied asset that we don't go all the way to the extreme that there's no energy, as long as there's energy, it's going to do really well. As long as we're not in the dark ages, ages. yeah. Precisely, <laughs> you're gonna be, you're, that to me is how I, I, I so I, I really focus my energy and efforts on, on Bitcoin and that's, and, and my investment dollars more importantly. Okay, and Bitcoin has been volatile lately. You know, it hit its all-time high back in May, I think, at around sixty thousand. Uh, it's now down in the low, lower forty thousands. Some, uh, you know, pretty negative headlines came out last week, both in terms of China basically saying we're done with it; it's it's illegal here now, uh, and then uh, the SEC. Uh, Chairman Gensler of the SEC basically said, okay, look, guys, the sheriff's coming to town here. Wild West is being tamed. It's going to get a lot uh, less fun going forward. But interestingly, you know, Bitcoin had sort of a short-term reaction to those, but it's already pretty much recovered. So I'm just curious, um, as you look sort of the near term, you know, people who aren't in Bitcoin yet are thinking about getting in. Um, do you see it as, as having stabilized enough for this to be a good entry point or, or, or do you think that it could drop a lot further from here or it's off to the races? What do you think? So, you know, it's one of these assets where, I mean, I saw, what was the, the moving average? It was like a, 
like a 10 year moving average, right? So it's a very, very long term chart, momentum chart. And it's never gone down for Bitcoin. It's always been positively sloping. And I think it just crossed over 15,000, which is gives you some idea of like where the really long term support is. Um, so when we were down to 29 or 30,000 a couple of months ago, that's a lot of bad news baked in at that point. I mean, it, it is, I think it's going to continue to be volatile. And so for me, I think that's just a positioning thing. If you, you know, if, if you're worried about the volatility of it, you're too big in it, get smaller. Um, ultimately, it's been fascinating to watch the volatility turn people off because on some level it's, hey, here's actually a real market. We are seeing an actual real market and it scares <laughs> the shit out of people, right? They're like, oh my God, the volatility. Like, no, 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 that's just a market. I, I know we've all forgotten because bonds have been euthanized and stocks have been euthanized and gold's been euthanized and real estate only goes up. And it's like, wow, like it's a vol. So, and, and the other thing too, I think is important. There's this great chart I've referenced a number of times using our research. Uh, it's a tremendous chart by Dan Oliver at Mermican Capital. And it shows the price of gold in Weimar, Germany from 1920 to 1925 or whatever. And so as it's going from whatever, 10 marks to a trillion marks, um, the volatility was simply inhumane, where if you were levered long gold as through one of the great hyperinflations in man's history, you lost all of your money four times, five times, because the, the, there were times when people actually, oh, my gosh, the, the, the German government's going to QE taper, sell bit, you know, sell gold. Go, I don't need gold. I need marks. Right. And and then, nope, didn't work out. Right. So the volatility, I think, is more just something we're going to have to live with. And so for me, it's it's less about, hey. Do I do I do I do I think there's not any more downside in the short run from a trading perspective? I, I don't know, but I look at it as from a big picture perspective of where real rates have to, how negative they have to go just to keep the uh, the wheels on the cart for the U.S. and other Western sovereigns, and it's a really good environment for neutral reserve assets with finite uh, you know finite assets like a Bitcoin. Uh, like a gold, like certain types of real estate, uh, stocks, et cetera. All right, great. Well, look, as we wrap up here, Luke, um, thank you. And you've given people a lot of really good um, and I think very motivating. <laughs> I, think, I think people are paying a lot of attention now uh, because a lot of this stuff is is pretty uh, you know, scary in some ways about, about where this is very likely headed. Uh, but you've given them a lot of constructive fodder on uh, areas and asset classes they can consider to try to make it through here. I, I do want to underscore the chart that you just referenced. I'll try to find it and superimpose it when you were mentioning it earlier. Um, but I think it underscores just a, a really unfair but critical part of where we are um, in the storyline here, which is it is likely to continue to be volatile going forward, maybe even much more volatile than we can imagine at this point. And I uh, a set it and forget it approach may may basically be a self-defeating one that, that there might be so much whipsaw in the volatility that that like that chart you just talked about you can even though you're right in the long term you know your your logic is right you can get wiped out in the short term as these whipsaws happen so um, you really got to pay attention and for a lot of people um, you know you got a busy life you might not really have the investing experience um to be the best steward of your money in in this this time um you, you'll be the best steward in terms of valuing it but uh, my point is is you may want to partner with a financial professional who shares the same types of, of outlook and, and respect for the risks that, that luke's been mentioning here 
who can be watching the market closely for you and letting you know when it might be time to, uh, to change course, uh, given you know, some of the real-time changes going on in the markets. Uh, I see you nodding a little bit as I'm saying this, Luke. Uh, I guess my question for you as we, we wrap up here is, is, is there any other advice that you would have for you know, today's prudent investor who's just trying, you know, their goal is basically just to kind of hang on through what's coming, at least not get beaten up too much by it. And maybe, you know, you mentioned there might be some opportunities like with gold and Bitcoin, you said to maybe actually increase your standard of living going forward. Um, any kind of parting advice for those folks? I would think it's, you know, it, part and parcel with that chart about gold and the Weimar Germany, not to say the U.S. is going to be Weimar Germany, but I think we talked about why there's going to have to be likely uh, inflation over time. But that volatility means I think it's important to not be over levered, right? So I think as, as I think about where do I want to be positioned as an individual um, living here in America, um, I think it's important to be in a better position than my government, in a same position, in a better position. And, and what I mean by that is, is if I look at the United States, they have 130% at the GDP. Uh, they're not covering their monthly interest without help from the Fed's printing press. Uh, they're highly dependent on stocks going up. They're highly dependent on uh, real estate going up. They actually do own uh, a fair chunk of gold. Uh, and, and so that's the U.S.'s position, right? That, that's, that's the United States government portfolio. And so as an individual living in the United States, it goes back to, I want to be faster that, you know, the U S government, they're the, they're the slow fat kid, the bears entering the campsite. That's the slow fat kid portfolio, but the slow fat kid has sort of the bear gun of the fed. We know the slow fat kid is not going to allow itself to get eaten for lack of printed money. Right. And so the, the bear gun is going to, it's not going to go down without a fight, not going to go down without a fight. So I want to be just a step faster than, than, than the slow fat kid with the bear gun and understand, okay, the U.S. government, there's nobody more short dollars than the U.S. government, right? So I want to, I, you want to have some, I think, leverage. I don't think you want to be unlevered in this economy, right? But I think you want it to be very conservative leverage. So for the average American investor, 30-year fixed mortgage, borrow the money. Not too much, but borrow the money. The Fed is giving you the coupon, right? They're, they're, they're creating an artificial mortgage rate at whatever it is, 2.9% for a 30-year fix. They're getting, you know, take the mortgage. You know, if you can put it in productive assets that have a have a have a um, you know a bit of a coupon, whether that be you know a diversified portfolio of stocks, whether that be some farmland, whether that be a little bit of gold, basically you kind of mimic the U.S. government's portfolio, but just don't be as levered, trusting that because they are so levered and have a printing press, they're going to keep they're going to keep the 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 uh, you know your assets moving in the right direction because they need it to make ends meet for them. And in the meantime, whether gold and Bitcoin work as a small portion of your portfolio, hey, great. But the other side of that is, is the, the, the leverage you have in your portfolio. Uh, you know, stocks should rise relative to bonds because the government needs them to. Uh, you're basically mimicking a U.S. government portfolio, just less levered. And, and I think you'll probably be in good shape if you do that over time. All right. Well, phenomenal summary, phenomenal discussion, Luke. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming back on here. Uh, I know I'm going to have clamors to have you back on again really soon. I hope we can invite you back on. Um, very quickly, for people who want to follow you and your work, where should they go? 
Absolutely. Just they can check out our website at fftt-llc.com for more information about different product offerings we have for both institutional, high net worth, retail investors. And then they can also check out our Twitter feed is, is pretty active at Luke Groman, L-U-K-E-G-R-O-M-E-N. Fantastic. And uh, during the editing process, I'll put those URLs up on the screen so folks know exactly where to go. Luke, again, thank you so much. I appreciate you giving us so much time and look forward to having you back on the program again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, Adam. It was great talking again. All right. Now is the time on the program where we check in with Wealthion's endorsed financial advisor, the folks at New Harbor Financial. I'm joined here today, as usual, by lead partners, John Lodra and Mike Preston. Hi, John. Hi, Mike. Hey, Adam. Nice to see you. Hi, Adam. Good to be back with you today. Thanks. All right, guys. Well, look, um, just a phenomenal discussion there with Luke. Went a little long, but I think all those extra minutes were totally worth it. Um, uh, so, guys, I want to ask you some questions about what the market's been doing since last week, because it actually has been a bit of a wild ride. Even today itself looks like it's a pretty wild day. Um, but why don't we just quickly uh, give you guys a chance to react to, uh, to what you heard Luke say. Mike, why don't we start with you? Yeah, I found the talk fascinating. I, you know, particularly fascinating. A couple of things I wrote down. Um, he he was talking about how asset prices are at all time highs here, and because of central bank intervention, our economy is so dependent on all time high asset prices. It puts us in a very precarious situation. Uh, he says that the Fed is printing eleven percent. You know, our government is printing eleven percent of tax receipts, and that's with asset prices at the tippy top of probably the largest bubble in our lifetimes. You know, we kind of shudder to think what could happen if asset prices fall, not just the stock market, but the real estate market. Towns and cities and municipalities rely on tax receipts uh, based on all-time high property values. So it's really a dangerous situation. And, and, and I think it's scary and frankly um, unfair that we were put in this uh, unstable system without really being asked our opinion as a, as a as a population. Um, and I'll let John, you know, uh, chime in too. Well, John, why don't you chime in, but just, yeah, on Mike's point there, I mean, that's what Luke was, uh, his talk really was all about, which is that central banks have been backed into a trap where they've got to get busier inflating or they're just going to start defaulting. Um, is this a trap you think they can get out of or is, is Luke right, which is, uh, this is kind of a uh, a no-win situation for the Fed in the long run. Yeah, I think it's it's hard to see a, a winning scenario here in, in, in that there will be no pain. Uh, I think no matter what happens, there will likely need to be pain because the policy errors, if, if you might even call them that, which we certainly do, have already been made, right? Now it's just, a, <clears throat> I think, a menu of, of uh, un unpleasant uh, trade-offs. Um, but the whole concept of you know um, this this thought that um, they won't let it happen because they can't afford to um, it, it makes for a great soundbite I think but you know look countries have failed economies have failed in the past you know surely the orchestrators of those systems didn't want them to fail so <clears throat> the idea of of not wanting something from happening and being able to keep it from happening I think is an important rubber meets the road concept and and I. I think the, the takeaway from this from a day-to-day -day standpoint is no, no matter how badly the central banks and, and governments want to keep things afloat, I think um, we should be prepared and investing-wise, people should be prepared for, despite that desire, 
them not being able to hold things together. And there will be likely carnage, likely extreme volatility. And, you know, we only need to go to the last couple of major market implosions, the tech bubble and the housing bubble. Certainly they didn't want that to happen, but it happened because uh, they couldn't control it when it started. All right, well said. Well, look, real quickly, um, love to get your guys' opinion on, you know, Luke's walk through um, sort of the type of allocation that he thinks uh, is prudent for the type of world we're going into and, and basically just restating what he said, you're sort of flipping the conventional pyramid uh, of investing on its head here, where uh, usually you have a large allocation in bonds and stocks, uh, maybe some real estate investments, maybe a tiny bit of commodities, and maybe a little slice in the precious metals, maybe crypto. Luke really kind of flips that. And it seems like he's got the greatest confidence on the, the precious metals and, and the Bitcoin side. Um, and then says commodities are good. Yeah, maybe some real estate stocks are looking really shaky here and bonds, you know, he, he uh, compared to the slowest camper uh, in the campground when the bear runs amok. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, I, I think that outlook is relatively consistent with how you guys see the world, but don't let me put words in your mouth. Uh, John, why don't we come back to you and then we'll go to you, Mike. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting and uh, way that, that Luke put that kind of take the conventional, you know, kind of allocation schema and flip it around. Yeah, I mean, most financial firms, big, big financial firms, mainstream financial firms will say, you know, hey, allocate the bulk of your assets to stocks and bonds based upon your age and maybe around the fringes, throw a token 3% or 5% of commodities, this and that, and basically just set it and forget it and be done with it. Um, we entirely agree with, with the basic concept of turning that um, formula upside down. We, we think uh, real assets, tangible assets, commodities, other forms of real assets, you know, precious metals, real estate provided it's pr priced um, fairly and not overvalued because you know even a good cash flowing piece of real estate, if you pay too much for it, is gonna be a negative or disappointing return on, on your investment. So yeah, we totally agree with that. Yeah, I, I certainly want to call attention to the stocks part. You know, even, even though Luke agrees that stocks are crazy overvalued and, and therefore deserve a much lower allocation than what traditional logic would, uh, would dictate. Uh, I think that this again bears a, a, a point of, um, you know, kind of mention that many folks uh, think of stocks as an inflation uh, hedge and, and, and they're not. If you go back in history, they can be absolutely horrible inflation hedges when, especially when they're overvalued like they are now. Now, there is a fair point to say over the long term, stocks can be a good um, purchasing power hedge in the sense that over the long term, stocks and, and the revenues and the, you know, the commerce that, that the companies under, you know, behind those stocks do should be tied to real, real wages, real prices and things like that. And so therefore be a, a long term store of value but they can be an outright horrible inflation hedge in the short term when, when stocks are, are tremendously overvalued. Um, GMO put a, a really good two-piece uh, uh, part uh, on inflation out just recently. I, I barely got to, to read it, but they make this very, um, very key, key distinction. And they say, uh, obviously, if you're gonna buy stocks, make sure you buy undervalued stocks because the key is the valuations when inflation takes, takes, takes root as to how um, safe or, or unscathed or, or, you know, kind of uh, unvolatile or non-volatile those stocks will be uh, when inflation hits. Yeah, I, I love that advice. Buy, uh, 
by undervalued stocks. Um, I, I think those are um, about the scarcest thing, uh, you know, in the financial system right now, uh, unless maybe you're talking about uh, silver stocks. Um, uh, we'll get into that in just a minute here, but I mean, it, it writ large, yeah, stock valuations are at all-time record highs. Uh, it's incredibly hard to find uh, a stock that is trading at uh, you know anywhere near what a historical PE multiple used to be. Um, all right, so uh, Mike, as I come to you, let, let's actually dig into the precious metals for a second um, because they uh, have had a, a rough ride, uh, I would say, over the past you know two months. Uh, but certainly this week, they've been kicked a couple of times. Um, most notably yesterday, uh, silver was down at least at one point, like four and a half percent. We're seeing a, ni a nice rebound today. But to me, it really seems to be the story of the past week, at least in the market, um, with the volatility, both in precious metals and stocks, has been the dollar. Uh, the dollar has been showing surprising strength here. Um, markets definitely seem to be, you know, uh, having a hard time holding on to their all-time highs here. Uh, and I just mentioned what was going on with precious metals. So what what are you seeing as you look at the activity in the market right now? Yeah, a lot of interesting things under the surface, Adam. You, you mentioned gold and silver. Well, gold is sitting right on a support shelf. This critical, there's a critical level of support, 1680 to 1720. Uh, yesterday, we closed at around 1740 or so um, and, and broke right down into that, into that range. With silver, really critical level at 22, you know, and we broke right through that almost at 2140 or so in the futures market. And so these are just giant consolidations, big triangles, if you will. If you look at them on a weekly chart, you see that they're, they're giant, uh, in my opinion, bullish triangles because the previous trend before the triangle was, was up, but they've really been testing people's patience, investors' patience several times. We've broken down through the bottom quickly and, and gold particularly, and now with silver. Uh, each time we broke through the bottom though, including today, uh, we have reversed sharply. So it's almost, like, it's almost like the market is trying to shake out the weak hands because in, in general, that would be a short signal when you break down outside of a triangle or through a support shelf. But these markets are immediately reversing. Uh, we, we really think that this consolidation is uh, conducive to a sharp move higher, particularly because these, these bearish signals have been reversed. Sentiment is bad. If you look at um, like DSI, which is a sentiment indicator, we're in the low teens in terms of bulls in silver in particular. It's in stark contrast to what you saw in August of 2020 with very high readings in bullish sentiment. So, you know, the stage is set for a significant rally. Uh, the dollar, you mentioned the dollar. Well, the dollar has been been stronger for a few days, a few weeks even, and that certainly is, has probably put pressure on metals. It's not always 100% correlation. Uh, a stronger dollar doesn't always mean weaker metals, but sometimes it does. Oftentimes it does, I would say. Um, but the stronger dollar is really a risk to the overall asset markets. I mean, all, there's a lot of foreign bonds that are denominated in dollars, all of those countries, many of them emerging economies, have to buy dollars to pay coupon payments. That's a negative. Um, the rising dollar is another sign that uh, investors around the world are a little bit skittish and flocking to the dollar. So a higher dollar in general is bad for the equity markets, sometimes bad for gold and silver, but not always. I, I would lean heavily towards the technical side on gold and silver and the low bullish sentiment at present and the fact that we're back into the apex of these bullish triangles as a positive sign for anyone that's in the metals and for anyone that wants to add or, 
or buy for the first time, uh, it's a really good time to do so. All right. Um, I just want to comment to you on, uh, well, two things. One, to me, it seems like there's sort of a battle royale setting up here between uh, the Brent Johnsons of the world and the David Hunters of the world, at least in the near term. Uh, both are folks that we've had on the program uh, in past months. Um, Brent Johnson is the creator of the dollar milkshake theory that basically says, hey, don't count the dollar out. In fact, it's likely to get stronger as uh, the global economy gets weaker. And he walks us through that whole logic. Um, uh, and that obviously is bad for stocks. And Ken, as you said, might be, be bad for the precious metals. David Hunter uh, is expecting a, um, a blow off top in the markets here, basically caused by a pretty precipitous decline in the dollar from where it is right now. The dollar index is trading at about 94.3 right now. Um, he's expecting it to go down to 80 in the relatively near future, which he sees as the catalyst for a blow off top in equities, but also is going to basically send the precious metals to the moon uh, is what he's calling for. He's calling for the miners, I think the more than double from, from this stage. Um, so it's gonna be very interesting to see sort of who wins out in the short term here. Um, I will give Brent uh, the nod that he says, hey, you know what, even though he's predicting a higher dollar, it doesn't mean that gold can't go higher along with the dollar, which a lot of people think of the historic relationship, higher gold, lower, uh, higher dollar price, lower gold price. He said, that's not a guarantee. And there are periods in history where both can go up. So. Um, you know, Brent's not making an anti-gold call when he's making that stronger dollar call. So it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, I did send out a tweet the other day that got a lot of attention. And I'm just going to mention it here. Um, you know, looking at silver getting whacked down uh, yesterday into the, you know, the 21s, as you said, Mike, um, I really just asked the question out there because I was curious. Um, how many other assets, you know, after the past 10 years of central bank intervention and just in the U.S. alone in the past year and a half, we've, we've issued over 10 trillion in monetary and fiscal stimulus. How many other asset prices are trading at their 2013 levels besides silver? And there are precious few, I'll tell you that. So as I said earlier, it's hard to find things that aren't overvalued these days. But man, silver just seems to be on a fire sale right now. So Mike, it'd be very interesting to see if we break um, through those wedges that you were talking about. And we'll keep tracking closely here on this program. All right, guys, as we begin to wrap up, John, I'm going to come back to you um, real quick. You know, market tops more than anything else are about sentiment, right? Sentiment needs to shift. The euphoria needs to get punctured before the, the real big market drop can, can happen. Um, you know, we're seeing the market uh, uh, get a little shaky here. Um, obviously, people, there's lots to be concerned about these days, everything from, um, you know, rising inflation, uh, rising cost of living, people getting squeezed with their incomes. Uh, now there's, you know, tons of concern around the world about energy prices, even just energy availability. Um, so people are getting more and more nervous. But what's interesting is we're seeing some anger that we've never seen before really directed at the Federal Reserve. You know, a lot of this is, uh, you know, triggered by the the, the senior Fed officials that were um, found to be trading, you know, many million dollar size trades last year in the markets in uh, assets that were benefiting directly from the policies that these guys were voting for, how that is not uh, illegal or at least a violation of Fed ethics uh, is a complete uh, mind boggling mystery to me. Um, but where I'm going with this is, is, you know, are we potentially nearing the stage where enough people lose faith in the system, that sentiment can crack in a way that could then lead to the type of, of reversal in markets that we think is so overdue. Yeah, in a, in a word, I think absolutely. And, and um, 
you know, that, that's those sentiment shifts can happen very abruptly, um, as we've seen before. Um, look at the sentiment shifts during the housing bubble collapse. It was all quiet and then all panic, right? Same in, in the tech bubbles, uh, even the COVID, uh, you know, kind of emergence uh, March of 2020. Sentiment can shift on a dime. And when, and when it truly does, it uh, doesn't matter what anybody says. Um, what was a week ago a soothing comment becomes a ignored and dis dismissed comment. You know, so in other words, the Federal Reserve saying, hey, we'll do whatever it takes. At some point when the sentiment has shifted, that will be taken as not reassurance, but an insult, right, uh, to, to the folks whose sentiment has changed. And, um, you know, sentiment is kind of, kind of like game theory. You know, there's plenty of folks out there that are saying, you know, look, um, this recent pullback in the stock market, I think we're down 5% from the, the recent high in the S&P roughly. Um, people might be quick to say, oh, wow, everybody's, you know, panicking now. They think the sky is falling. That, that is a contrarian indicator that sentiment has gotten too negative too fast. You know, you can make that argument round in circles. Um, the reality is, is when you look at the broad sentiment, very, very hardly anybody thinks things can go down in a major way, right? Um, yeah, maybe they'll allow in their minds about a you know, five or 10% correction, which is a healthy correction and should be bought every, you know, that, that, you know, speaks to a sentiment that hasn't shifted at all. It speaks to a sentiment that is, has blind faith that every bit, every dip will be bought and every dip will be rescued. And um, when, when that fails, <laughs> we'll see, a, I think, a real big sentiment shift. And I think we're getting close. I mean, there's a lot of um, political pressures in light of some of the things you just raised there, Adam, where, you know, uh, I think the, you know, ammunition of policymakers to kind of come to the rescue is going to get pretty dangerously thin. So. All right. Well, well said. Well, Mike, I'm going to give you the final word here as we begin to wrap things up. Um, what parting, uh, parting context do you want to leave folks with here? I just want to emphasize just how extreme a period of time we're living through. And John and I and Justin and others here at New Harbor have, and we talked to lots of people, clients and prospects and, and, you know, read all the time. And we, we're seeing sentiment that's absolutely unbelievable in the last few months. Um, you know, amongst uh, people in general and the media, there's this feeling that the stock market is bulletproof, that it's the unsinkable ship, it's Titanic. And I, I would, I, I'd like to give a shout out to Charles Hughes Smith, who I know has been on on this program. He wrote a fantastic piece yesterday. I'm looking at it now. It's called The Market Crash Nobody Think Is Possible Is Coming. You know, so I think that it's it's true. Nobody thinks the market can go down, like John said, more than 10%. And certainly nobody thinks that it can crash. But and in trying to time or predict a crash is risky business, but it's very possible. We're seeing the most unbelievable extreme set of circumstances in terms of sentiment and psychology and really buy-in. Everyone's kind of bought into this idea that it's bulletproof and retail traders are all in and margin debt is at all time highs, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I might add one more thing. We're seeing from a technical perspective, a broadening market top. The New York Stock Exchange composite uh, had, you know, topped quite a few months ago. The transports topped back in, in May. Even the Dow, looking at the chart of the Dow right now, is trading at levels that it traded at back in, in April. And the Dow actually went and made a high, I think it was on May 10th. It made another high. It poked through that uh, previous high and spent five or six days at new highs in early September. 
and has since rolled over and is trading where it was trading back in April. There's six months of gains gone in just a few days of pullback. Like John said, only 5% off the high. So it's a very stealthy broadening top that's probably in the early stages of a bear market, yet nobody thinks it's possible. That's what's uncanny about the time we're living through right now. Everyone sees that things are not sustainable, that they, they don't seem real, but most people are transfixed and they're not taking action because they think the Fed is omnipotent and we're here to say that they're not and to be careful. All right, well, I think that's a really good um, emphasis or re-emphasis for the video that we shot last week, which was uh, the video that walked people through uh, the most common ways and practices uh, that folks can use to hedge their investment uh, portfolio against a market correction, against downside risk. Uh, folks, if you didn't see that, it's, to, it's a great uh, free video. It comes along with a, with a free report as well. You can uh, get the report at wealthion.com slash how to hedge. Um, so if you haven't seen it yet, go there and get that. It's totally free. Um, but uh, hedging, as we talk about uh, in that video, uh, only benefits people that that hedge in advance of the correction, right? Just like fire insurance, can't buy insurance on your house after it's burned down. So um, this is a time for you know getting your hedges in place, getting a plan in place. Um, I want to go back to the the chart that Luke mentioned about uh, the price of gold during Weimar Germany. Everybody knows that the price of gold skyrocketed, and those that uh, owned gold at the end of, of Weimar were vastly better off than those that didn't. But that chart showed that it was a very volatile time and there were periods where the gold price totally collapsed, right? And so you could get wiped out along the way if you weren't paying attention. And that I think is sort of the crux of what investors really need to be focusing on right now is if you don't have the, the time, the bandwidth, the expertise to really be watching the markets closely as we go into this volatility that's ahead of us, I think you're really, you're really well served by working with a financial professional who can be doing that on your behalf 24 seven, who understands and takes into accounts the risks that I talked about with Luke that we've been talking about here with John and Mike. Um, if you've got one who already does that, great, stick with them. They are definitely worth their weight in gold. Uh, but if you don't, or you'd like the counsel of one that does, John and Mike and their team in New Harbor offer free consultations. Uh, there's no strings attached, no obligation to work with them, doesn't cost you anything. They simply offer it as a public service to help people get better prepared and try to reduce the body count uh, if this correction that, that we've been talking about here indeed comes to pass. If you wanna learn how to do that, just stick around at the end of the video, it's coming up in just a few seconds. Um, all right, as we wrap up here, a couple other quick things. Um, uh, if you wanna support this channel, see more great guests like Luke, just like this video and then click the red subscribe button below as well as the little bell icon right next to it. If everybody watching this video does that together, it really does help this material get out and reach more people across YouTube. If you want to see who we're having on in the future as uh, guests um, or have a voice in who I bring on, uh, follow me on Twitter at, at MenloBear. I look at all the feedback I get there and I share who's coming up on the program next there. Um, speaking of coming up next, I mentioned David Hunter earlier. I put some words in his mouth. I won't have to next week because he is going to be uh, our uh, expert guest next week. We'll have him back on and see what his latest prognostications are. And he rarely, never, uh, he, I guess not even rarely, he never, ever disappoints. Um, all right, folks. Well, guys, it uh, looks like things are getting more and more interesting. Today, the markets rallied and then they 
then they reversed as the dollar got stronger. Now the dollar is getting weaker again. This is the type of turbulence that you expect to see as markets are about to break one way or the other. So no matter what happens from here, we'll be tracking it together. And guys, I look forward to seeing you here next week. And everybody else, thanks for watching. See you soon, Adam. We'll see you next week. All right, Adam. Thanks again. See you next week. If you'd like to schedule a consultation with one of the financial advisors at New Harbor Financial, simply go to Wealthion.com. These consultations are completely free and there are no strings attached. The good folks at New Harbor will simply answer any questions you have about your investment goals or your portfolio and give you their best advice given their latest market outlook. They're willing to do this because they care about protecting people's wealth. And because Wealthion has connected them with so many thoughtful investors just like you over the past decade. We started doing this because so many people have approached us in frustration, looking for a solution because they're feeling out of alignment or downright ridiculed by the standard financial advisors who have been managing their money. You know the type. The kind that just pushes all of your money into the market, scoffs at the idea of owning gold, and when you bring up concerns about the market's sky-high valuations, they say, don't worry, the market will always take care of you. For many of the reasons discussed in today's video, we think this is one of the most challenging and treacherous times in history for investing. We strongly believe that today's investors are best served working in partnership with a conscientious professional financial advisor who understands the risks in play. Now, we're agnostic which professional advisor you work with, as long as they're good. If you're already working with one, that's fantastic. Stick with them. But if you don't, or are having trouble finding one you respect or trust, then consider talking to John and Mike and the team at New Harbor. Now, for those about to ask, yes, there's a business relationship between Wealthion and New Harbor, which we put in place to make sure everything is handled according to SEC regulations. All the details on this are clearly provided on the Wealthion.com website. Also, it's important to note that New Harbor is able to work with U.S. citizens, green card holders, and those with existing assets in the USA but for regulatory reasons, they aren't able to take on non-U.S. clients. All right, with all that said, if you'd like some insight and guidance on how to protect your wealth during this unprecedented time in the markets, go to Wealthion.com to schedule your free consultation with the good folks at New Harbor. Thanks for watching.